morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. And uh, as I am Jeff. I am the senior minister at the church. And I'm going to be opening the book of Revelation with you this morning. It's what we're looking at in these morning services. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you're visiting us today and you're, um, and you're new to the Bible, it's the last book in the Bible. And uh, it is a revelation of, of who Jesus is and what he has done uh, as John writes to these first century churches. We're going to look at a couple of chapters um, of Revelation this morning. We're not going to read it all, um, but what I will do is I will read the first section and I'll read the last section of the passage that we are looking at uh, this morning. So it's Revelation chapter 2, um, verse 1, and, and then I'm going to go to uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Um, so let me read that for you. This is a, this is a letter that's written to the seven churches in, uh, in Asia. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and you've endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." And then the letter is written to each of these seven churches, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, and Philadelphia. And we're going to go to the church in Laodicea, which is chapter 3 and verse 14. There's messages to each of those churches. So we've just read the message to the church in Ephesus, and now we're going to read the message to the church in Laodicea. In chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, and so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this series is called Blessed, and um, very interested in John's interpretation of our decals, of our sign here, the lion and the black sheep, or the lion, and the lamb, the lamb of God, um, uh, as represented in the book of Revelation, the lion and the lamb. And the promise of this book in Revelation starts with, in verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And at the end of this book, Revelation, we read these words in chapter 22, verse 7. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Last week, we read the passage about this vision that John had of Jesus. Paul read it for us early in our service today. A vision that he had where he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and he looked and he saw one who was like a son of man, and he was wearing a robe that was long and a sash across his chest and eyes that blazed like fire and a two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. He had feet like burnished bronze. And, and, and John had this vision of the risen Jesus Christ and he fell at his feet as though dead. And, and Jesus reached out and touched John and, and said, don't be afraid, John, because I was dead, but now I am alive and, uh, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And there's this great vision that we looked at last week of the, of the risen Christ. And what this risen Christ, this Jesus said to John in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, he, he said, I want you to write down what you see and I want you to send it to the churches, the words of Jesus. And, and these are some of the words that we will read throughout the book of Revelation, these words, these revelations of what Jesus is saying to the church. And last week we thought about and reflected on the fact that as John looked at this vision, Jesus was standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, which the Bible tells us in Revelation represented these seven churches. And Jesus was right in the middle of the seven churches, right there in the middle, which is why in each of the messages that we read to the churches, Jesus can then say, I know. I know what is happening in and among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. I know all things about you. The risen and living Jesus lives and moves amongst his church and amongst his churches. And his eyes we hear and we read, they see like blazing fire, they penetrate. And he speaks, and when his words come, they come like a double-edged sword, which we said is one that wounds and heals, challenges and comforts. Words that will come very clearly to these churches. Revelation, uh, Nancy Guthrie says in her book, Revelation doesn't simply contain letters to the seven churches. It is a letter that John intends to be circulated to seven churches in Asia. It was written to meet the very real needs of believers in, this, in that day. And some of them were compromised. And they needed to be jolted out of their compromise. And some of them were enduring costly persecution. 
And they needed to be strengthened to face that persecution. And all of them needed to understand the cosmic battle against earth and and that was being waged in heaven. And seven is one of the numbers that are used in Revelation a lot, and it's the number of completeness. And so by addressing seven churches, John is saying that his letter is written to the church as a whole. Each of the seven churches addressed represents struggles and victories that are present in the church in every generation. So if we read, uh, and, and I would encourage you to take the time to read slowly through these seven messages. We just read two of them this morning. But if we read every message to every one of the seven churches, we really get a composite picture of, of the kind of challenges that are faced by the church in every generation, in every place, in every country, all over the world, and that we would face today. So there's something in here for every one of us. Every church, every nation, every time throughout the ages. And as I read through these seven messages to the churches in Asia, in what is now modern-day Turkey, in the first century, I read kind of three categories that represent uh, things that are experienced by every church everywhere in the world and that we would experience here in the Plymouth Christian Centre in the 21st century. There's something in here for every one of us that speaks to every one of us. The three things that I see the church wrestling with and that Jesus challenges in a compassionate way but in a forceful way as he speaks through John to the churches by the Spirit of God, say to the angel of the church of Ephesus, say to the angel of the church of Thyatira, say to the church in Laodicea, these are the words of Jesus. This is the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He speaks into three things. He speaks into areas of compromise, where the church has compromised with culture around it, where the church has assimilated culture. The church has swum in waters so long that they've adapted to become just like those waters, just like the culture around it. And some of the things that Jesus challenges in these words are challenges against compromise, that you have compromised, that you have, you have assimilated too much to society around you. You've accepted certain things amongst you that are not acceptable in the church of Jesus Christ. Another area that I think we can find in the seven churches in this composite message that would speak to every one of us is conflict. He's addressing particularly persecution, confrontation, that these churches, some of them specifically, are being persecuted for their faith. They are being ostracized. They are being isolated. They are being pushed out of certain jobs. They are being, as we've heard over these last weeks, some of them are being killed for their faith. They are being thrown in front of lions. They are being pulled physically apart. They are being uh, crucified. Some of the church leaders at this time and in this period were, were crucified, were murdered, including Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. And so they were facing real persecution. They were facing real conflict and confrontation. And Jesus addresses that fact amongst his churches. And the third thing that I think Jesus addresses is complacency. And of the two churches that we just read, there was a sense of success, there was a sense of outward success, a sense of outward vibrancy, and yet there was also the challenge of Jesus coming to them that they had lost their first love, that they had become complacent, they had become lukewarm in their faith. 
And Jesus challenges those things. Compromise, conflict, complacency, I think are the three things that you will find as you read through these seven letters to seven very different churches facing seven different uh, different, uh, areas and different challenges. And the message that we hear and that we read is that Jesus knows, he knows, he sees, and he is near. He knows. I know, he says repeatedly as he speaks to the church, I know of your deeds. I know that you have stood up for the faith. I know that you have not put up with the Nicolaitans. I know, I see, I am close. I am amongst the seven lampstands. I'm going to make a theological statement now that may shock some of you, so write this down. There are no perfect churches anywhere in the world. Some of you are like, really? There are no perfect churches. And this, the Plymouth Christian Centre, is not a perfect church. And some of you are not shocked by that statement. (laughs) Now, we may think for a while... When we look at other churches, or when we look from the outside, churches can have very good websites and great social media presences and good numbers, lots of people go there, and apparent success. But when you dig into the soil of any church, of every church, there are problems, there are difficulties, there are challenges. It may be for seasons of church's life. It may be conflict. It may be confrontation. It may be compromise, it may be complacency, but if you dig underneath the soil of any church, of any church body, anywhere in the world, you will find that there are no perfect churches. We are all sinners in need of a saviour. And for me, what John expresses this morning in his little message about Alpha and coming to this church and feeling that everyone else has got it together and he doesn't, I think that is a statement of of fact that we all feel that way. We are all a people who are in need of a saviour. We are all, to quote Eugene Peterson, at best uneven performers. We are, uh, all of us have a sawtooth history of up and down. We would all come and feel that we are fakes or that frauds or that we are failing or that everyone else has it together but we don't. But if you dig beneath the surface of all of our lives, we all of us face these challenges. We are a collection of sinners in need of a savior. A collection of sick people who have been made whole, who are being made well and being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And I like the way that Eugene Peterson describes church and describes the people of God. He speaks both of the Shekinah of congregation and the mess of congregation. Shekinah means glory or weight. And when he wrote, the pastor Eugene Peterson, he warned against those who see congregations with the impatience of those building a shopping mall rather than with the mindset of those cultivating a field. The end result, he said, is disillusionment with the church. What Peterson saw in the church was what he saw in nature and in the Bible, an imagination struck with wonder. The congregation, he wrote, is topsoil, seething with energy and organisms that have incredible capacity for assimilating death and participating in resurrection. The only biblical stance is awe. When we see what is before us, really before us, 
pastors take off their shoes before the Shekinah of the congregation, the glory of what God does amongst ordinary people, people like you and people like me, people who haven't got it all together. But when we come together in the name of Jesus Christ, God does amazing things amongst us. And there is an awe in that. There is a weightiness. There is a glory in that. And, and that's why Peterson writes of the Shekinah of congregation. And I think there is something in that. But he says it's also very messy. The life of the congregation and its members is a mess most of the time. But it is a beautiful, holy mess, if you can see it. In describing the various founding members of his congregation, he talks about the brokenness and the ordinariness of their lives. And he marvels that God is able to build a church upon such humble leaders. Using as an example the story of David at Ziklag, he describes the congregation as people whose lives were characterized by debt and distress and discontent. A congregation of runaways and renegades. The Shekinah of congregation, but also the mess of congregation. There's a passage in the Bible in Proverbs which says, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. You can have a clean uh, stable without the oxen, without the mess, but then you've got no growth and you've got no life. You might have cleanliness and order, but you've got no life. But where there is oxen, there is increase. But where there is oxen, there is oxen poo, there is mess. <laughs> and there is the mess of congregation where there is life, where there is health, where there is growth, there is also mess. So Jesus, through John, addresses churches that are compromising, that are facing conflict, and that are facing complacency. And there's something on this report card for every one of us. And the Bible says, and Jesus says, as we listen, as we read, as we look over his shoulder, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. What would Jesus write to you? And what would Jesus write to me? And what would Jesus write to this church? As each church is addressed, Jesus identifies himself. If you read it, you'll see it with each of the, of the characteristics that John has seen in his vision of the risen Christ. He commends the churches and in most cases he corrects them and then he makes promises to them for those that conquer, for those that overcome an ultimate reward, an eternal reward. So first of all, let's look at the promise or the problem, the problem of compromise. And I think this is identified in the churches in Ephesus, in Pergamum and in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, that's a part of the vision that John had seen, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's how Jesus describes himself to the church in Ephesus. And then he says to the church in Pergamon, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Jesus is writing to each of these churches that are compromising and he's describing himself in terms of the one who is amongst them, the one who speaks to them with this sharp double-edged sword, the one who sees them with this blazing eyes. 
an element of seeing and knowing and challenging these compromising churches. And these churches all have very much to commend them. Ephesus, if you look at Ephesus as a church, it's a church that works hard. It's a church that has persevered through great difficulty. It, it is a church that challenges false teaching, that doesn't like false teaching, and that will stand up for doctrine and de defends doctrinal purity. It is a church that endures hardship. And Jesus has seen all these things in the church in Ephesus. And in, it, it is a flagship church. Ephesus is a, is a flagship church in the region with a big reputation. Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul. It was led by Aquila and Priscilla. It was pastored by Timothy, who ultimately was martyred for his faith. This is not a lightweight church. This is not a Johnny-come-lately church. This is an established, Bible-teaching, established, large church, a flagship church with good leadership. It's not a lightweight church. And then there's Pergamum. And, and Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, and he says, you've been a strong witness in a dark place. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. They've remained true to Jesus' name, even um, as they've endured the loss of one of their number, Antipas, who's been martyred for the faith. They've gone through some trauma as a church, as they've watched people giving their lives. And Antipas in particular is mentioned in the church of Pergamum. I know where you live. I know that you live where Satan has his throne. I know that you live in a dark place. I know that you have stood up for the faith. And Jesus commends Pergamum as a church. And he commends and writes to Thyatira that they have worked hard. They've shown love and faith and service and perseverance. And they have upped their workload, doing more than they did at first. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. So there's a lot to commend these churches, Ephesus, Pergamon, Thyatira. They're solid churches. They're hard-working churches. They are serving churches. They're doctrinally strong churches. They are persevering churches. However, they have been tempted at some level, as we all are, to compromise, to assimilate, to fit into the cultures around them to let things slide a little, to give in to idolatry. And Ephesus, Jesus says, you have all of these things going for you, but I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And through all of the hard work and the serving and the ministry and the teaching and the apologetics, you've lost your love for Jesus. You've lost your passion the passion has gone. You're moving in drudgery and duty, in hard work. But, but the, the passion for Christ, the love that you once had for Jesus that beats so strongly in your heart is gone now. You've lost that first love. You've really fallen from a great height. And Pergamum, the church is, is challenged because they are tolerating teaching by someone nicknamed Balaam, who was encouraging them to eat meat that was being sacrificed to the idols, you know, the temple worship and the Caesar worship. And the, there was a lot that was done with the food and that it was sacrificed and, and consecrated to, to idols. And they'd started to just say, it doesn't matter, we'll, we'll eat that anyway. And, we'll, and they were tempted to commit sexual immorality, which was part of the 
the temple worship of that time. And they'd started just to kind of make compromises with the culture around them because the pressure was, was great. They were under the Roman Empire. They were, they were challenged to worship in certain ways, to bring uh, sacrifices, to, to, to move with the times around them. And so Jesus says, I've got this against you. You've, you've put up with this behavior amongst you. You've let go of the teaching of this Balaam-type character who's encouraged you towards idolatry and sexual immorality, and you, you've put up with that. And you have also let go of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we're never told, as we read this, we're never quite told what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is, so we have to read between the lines. But it was certainly in, in this direction of, of idolatry and worshiping other gods. And, and Jesus challenges the church in Pergamum and says, you've really started to compromise and to let go some of these things, and these things have slipped into the church. And Thyatira, they are rebuked for putting up with a self-nominated prophet, one uh, likened to Jezebel in the Old Testament, who promoted the worship of idols and spiritual adultery. And again, the challenge comes to Thyatira. You've, you've put up with this. You've allowed it to develop in the church, and it is causing you to compromise. So Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, these are great churches in many ways. They are thriving churches. They are strong churches. They are churches with good reputations. And, and Jesus, as he reads their report card, he says, I know, I know all of these things about you, but you have compromised. You have lost something of the essence of your faith. And he challenges them. He challenges them to change direction, to have a change of heart, to overcome. And he promises them eternal rewards. The, the promise that comes to them, but, but a church that is tempted to, to compromise. And then there's the church that is tempted and suffering under conflict and confrontation. The church facing persecution. And I think the two churches that are particularly highlighted in this regard in these seven churches are the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. So the church in Smyrna, Jesus writes, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. I know you don't have much materially, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This letter is read out to the church in Smyrna. You would think those are not very comforting words. You're going to face persecution. You're going to be put in prison, some of you, for a set period of time. Ten days is a, is, a, is a fullness of time, a set period of time that Jesus identifies. that He knows it's going to happen. And, and some of you will even give of your lives, you believers in Smyrna. And I know you don't have much, and I know that you are materially poor. And I know that you are facing persecution. And you're facing persecution from, this, from these make-believe Jews who are not really Jews who have who have denounced you to the Roman authorities. They are a synagogue of Satan. And, uh, and Jesus comforts this church that is, is persecuted. The two churches that are facing particular persecution are not challenged by Jesus, or he does not find them wanting. 
as he does the other churches. And to the church in Philadelphia, he says, I know that you have little strength, and yet you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And to a degree, all of the churches in this era are affected by this and have been down the ages. For for some today around the world, their Christian faith does mean actual potential death. It really does, right now, around the world, there are places where if you profess Christ as your Saviour and Lord, you are in danger of being killed. You are in real danger of being ostracised. You are in danger of being stoned or thrown out of your family. There are real threats, and there is the real suffering church around the world today that faces persecution and marginalization and mockery and slander. And both these churches uh, in, in, um, in Philadelphia and in Smyrna, they have been slandered and they have been denounced by the locals. And any protection afforded them from Roman edicts has been removed. There's little or no correction or challenge given to these churches. On the outside, they may seem poor, but in heavenly terms, Jesus says, you are rich. And to the church that seems rich, he will say, you are poor. Sometimes the values that we have in this world are totally in opposition to the values of the kingdom of God. So you feel that you are poor, but you are, in fact, rich. The persecuted church throughout the world and down the ages has rarely been in spiritual danger. It has always prevailed, and it always will. In fact, where the church is most persecuted often, it has grown and thrived the most. Like the churches, the underground churches in China and other places, where authorities have tried to oppress them, but the words of Jesus have come true, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I don't think in the West we truly face persecution. I really don't think we do. We may feel a sense of isolation. We may feel at times that we are being pushed to the edges of society or culture with some of our biblical viewpoints. We may feel the thrust of culture is moving increasingly away from godly values and biblical standards. And it may be that we have to stand up for that more and more and that the challenges will come our way. But Jesus challenges the church, but he comforts the church. And he promises them an eternal reward as they stand. This is a church facing conflict and confrontation and it affects the church all over the world. And in some way it will affect us. The third area that I do think is the greatest problem and the greatest challenge to the church in the West, to our kind of church, is the problem of complacency. The churches in Sardis and Laodicea. And what Craig Kirster writes about these churches, he says, to all appearances, these congregations would seem to be thriving, yet the messages to the Christians at Sardis and Laodicea are almost wholly negative. The dangers to these congregations come not from overt hostility, but from the kind of comfortable conditions that lead to complacency. Complacency almost always comes on the back of success or perceived success. So to Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, I know your deeds, 
You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Here's the double-edged sword of Jesus Christ speaking to his church. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And to Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now these churches, they are successful and orthodox on the outside, but they have lost their beating heart for Jesus. Love has been replaced with drudgery and duty. Passion has been replaced with passivity and apathy. And the church is saying, and the people in the church are saying, I am rich. I have need of nothing. Their their faith is lukewarm. They have a sense of self-righteousness, self-containment. We need nothing. We have what we need. And this is a danger faced by the Western church. More than persecution, more than conflict, more than confrontation, our challenges are compromise and complacency, a slow drift towards self-contained mediocrity. And what are we to do in, in light of these challenges of Jesus to the church? First of all, we need to be receptive to listen to what Jesus is saying to the church, to accept rebuke at times. The challenge comes again and again as Jesus speaks to the churches through this vision of John, this revelation of the risen Christ, of a persecuted church, a deceived church, a seduced church. But Jesus says again and again, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. And he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So there are times in our lives where we are to be receptive, to listen to what Jesus says to us. And the second thing that I think is good for every one of us is to realize our poverty. There's a line in a poem which says that we are empty again in wise poverty. Jesus said in his teaching on the Mount He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when you know how poor you are. You're blessed when you know your spiritual condition. You are blessed because then the kingdom of God can come to you. Then Jesus can come to you. The dangerous position to be in is that of these churches, which says, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing, which is the state of most people's hearts. But you do not realize, Jesus says, you do not realize that you are wretched and you are pitiful and you are poor and you are blind and you are naked. 
And, and this revelation of what we really are is the starting point of salvation. It's the starting point for God to come to us in our poverty and in our weakness and in our wretchedness, which is why someone like John Newton could write the words of the hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that, that found a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I can say I was poor, but now I am rich. He came to a realization of his spiritual state, that he realized that he was a wretched sinner, as someone separated from God by what he had done. He was a slave trader. He had lived a debauched life. And, but he came to a position where he realized that he was poor and naked and blind and wretched. And that is the position that we all of us need to come to, not to say I have need of nothing, I am spiritually self-contained, I have it all together, but we are a people that are in need of a saviour. So we are to be receptive to what Jesus says, to hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. We are to realise our poverty and we are to repent is the word that is found throughout the challenging words that Jesus shares with his church. He says to them, so be earnest and repent. So be earnest and repent. And we are really put off by the word repent, are we not? If you think of the word repent, you might think of somebody walking up and down the street with a placard saying, turn or burn. We might think of kind of those fiery preachers that are somewhat off-putting. Repent. But that's what Jesus says to the church. He says, be earnest and repent. Now, earnest is not a word either that we use very much these days. But it is showing or expressing sincerity or seriousness and earnest gesture of goodwill. To do something in earnest means with a purposeful or sincere intent. Settle down to study in earnest for the examination. It is to be serious and determined. And to repent means to change direction, to have a change of mind, to have a change of heart. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. He says, be earnest and repent. And then he calls for something which I think is at the essence of the Christian faith and that the center of the Christian church is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 3 and verse 20 of Revelation, and he's speaking to the church in Laodicea. He's saying, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. G. Campbell Morgan, who preached on this passage, said this was the church where Jesus was on the outside. Jesus was on the outside of the door knocking. I knock, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will open the door, I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me. This relationship with Jesus, he's offering them companionship. He's offering to break bread with them. He's offering to be in relationship with them. He is the bread of life. He's offering relationship and not religion. I guess the church in Laodicea and the church in Ephesus and many of these churches through all of that, that they were doing and all that they were preaching and all that they were teaching, 
but they'd, they'd slipped into a kind of a religious experience. They'd slipped into a kind of a, a dutiful drudgery, but they'd lost a sense of relationship with Jesus, of sitting down with him and eating with him and fellowshipping with him and being in communion with him and knowing him as a friend and a companion. And Jesus says, I, I want to come in. I want to sup with you. I want to eat with you. I want to be in fellowship with you. This, these are not rebuking words. This, it, these are the words of one who wants to be in relationship with his people. And this echoes the Song of Solomon 5, verse 2, the voice of my beloved. He knocks at the door, open to me, my beloved. And I think there are times, perhaps, for us as individuals and as a church, where we need to refocus on our relationship with Jesus, on, on relating to Jesus, on not doing his works or, or defending the faith or defending doctrinal purity or being fervent or all of these good things that churches do. But Jesus says, I want to reestablish a relationship with you. I want to be close to you. I want to come in and eat with you. And the final thing that I think is important to do that comes at the end of every section to every church is the promise of an eternal reward. Remember the reward that is before us. In 3 verse 21, to the one who is victorious, Jesus says, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, I will give eternal life. I will, give, uh, I will let you eat of the tree uh, of eternal life, of the tree of, in paradise. I, I will give you these eternal rewards. There is an eternal reward to be had, Jesus says, for those who overcome. But he says to each one of us, let me in. Let me into your heart. Let me into your life afresh. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. We don't want him to be on the outside of who we are and what we're doing. And these challenges, and all we're doing today is giving a brief overview, a survey of these seven churches. But we see them all facing similar things that you will find in any church, in any place, in any city, anywhere in the world. Churches that are facing conflict and challenge and persecution. Churches that are facing the danger of compromise with culture. And churches that are facing complacency and religiosity. And to two groups I would like to speak as I close and to pray for you. First of all, perhaps you have never turned the door handle to Jesus. Yet you know deep down that you are spiritually bankrupt, naked and blind. And that is a blessed place to be. It's a good place to be because you know that you need what Jesus offers. And you can open the door to him and he will come into your life. He will come into your heart, into your existence because he wants a relationship with you. Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. And it may be that you have never let Jesus Christ into your life in that sense, in that way. You've never opened that door that Jesus is knocking on, the door of your heart. And you could do that this morning and invite him in as you recognize that you are wretched and poor 
and in need of a saviour like we all are. Or perhaps, and I think this speaks to many of us, you may have opened the door some time ago, but for whatever reason, slowly but surely, you've excluded Jesus from your life. That is why it feels so empty and stale and dry. And you can welcome him back in. Turn the handle again and he will come in again. I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me. I want to have fellowship with you. And perhaps you've worked hard for the faith. Perhaps you have persevered through trouble. Perhaps you have endured slander. Perhaps you have done all of these things and yet you've lost something of your passion and your love for Jesus Christ. And I think many of us slide down that slide at times during our lives and in our journey of faith. But I think Jesus still knocks and still wants to come in and still wants relationship with us. He says, I don't want your religious duty. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to come close to you again. I want to revitalize your life and your heart. There's great challenge to these seven churches. There's great words of comfort. Jesus does not pull his punches. He speaks the truth to them in love. But he promises each one of them, to those of you who overcome, to those of you who are victorious, I promise you eternal life, eternal reward, that you will sit and reign on the throne of heaven with me. So I want to pray for both those groups this morning as we finish, as we close. And I want each of us, if we want to, to recognize our poverty, to be wise again in our poverty. To be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. And I'll pray, first of all, if you have never feel that you have never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, but you would like to do that this morning. Behold, I, I am standing at the door, I am knocking. Then you could pray and invite Jesus in and say in your own mind, in your own heart, Lord, I recognize my need of a Savior. I recognize I am spiritually poor, bankrupt. I recognize the emptiness of my heart and life. And Jesus, I want to invite you in to my life, to my existence, to my daily walk. I want to invite you in to my heart. I want you to come in and, and to be in relationship with me, Lord Jesus. And you can ask him right now to do that. And his promise is that he will come in and he will enter into relationship with you. And I think for many of us, this other truth applies. You may have opened the door some time ago, but for whatever reason, slowly but surely, you've excluded Jesus from your life. That is why it feels so empty and stale and dry. Welcome him back in. Turn the handle again. He will come in again. So Jesus, we pray for every one of us, whether we face compromise, whether we face conflict, 
Lord, whether we have assimilated and, and just become like those around us. Father, we open the doors again of our heart to you. We want to find again that passion, that passionate love for Jesus, that sense of love and relationship rather than duty and drudgery. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we open our hearts to you afresh this morning, that you would come in. And Lord, that we would know such deep relationship with you, that you would renew our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.